dealing with the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, effective vaccines protecting us from the virus are now being rolled out worldwide. The first documented case of COVID-19 in the U.S. was reported in January 2020, and the first vaccinations were administered in the U.S. just 11 months later. That's a pretty quick turnaround, right? As it turns out, the origins for the vaccinations in use today actually began years ago, right here at the University of Texas at Austin. In this podcast, biologics experts Jennifer Maynard, Jason McClellan, and George Georgiou explain how the COVID-19 vaccines were created. They will walk through the basics of biologic drugs and share exciting plans about UT's future in disease prevention and treatment. As you listen, the researchers will periodically reference slides. To view these slides, find the link in the podcast description. All right, let's jump in. To start, let's hear from UT Austin biology alumnus, Stephen McKnight. First and foremost, uh, all of us as Americans should be incredibly proud that over the last 10 months, our pharmaceutical and biotechnology companies have come up with a vaccine, and in fact, a number of effective vaccines that can safely prevent us from being infected by COVID. And that this happened only 10 months after the epidemic started last March is is almost unbelievable. It's, It's something to be really, really proud of. But I think, and, 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 and attention has gone appropriately to Moderna and Pfizer and the other for-profit companies that have succeeded in this way. But I, th- I think that many people don't recognize that the foundation from which that success comes emanates al- almost exclusively over the past four, five, six decades from academic research. So people don't realize that the, the scientists that you're going to be hearing from today and have already hear, heard from are busily at work doing the fundamental research that allows for the rapid response of the companies like Moderna and Pfizer. I'd like to go back maybe to when I was a young scientist. I was at Johns Hopkins back in the 1970s and early 1980s. And at, at that point, some obscure scientists by the name of Hamilton Smith and Dan Nathans were working on enzymes that allowed for bacteria to become resistant to infection by viruses that infect bacteria. These were, this was obscure research. It was, uh, they were called restriction enzymes and it was very good research, but no one was paying any attention to it. Well, that research on restriction endonuclease enzymes by and large created the whole biotechnology industry that began in the 70s in in the form of Amgen and Genentech and all the companies that used molecular cloning, gene cloning, to be able to produce recombinant proteins that turned into medicines. And so the the whole biotechnology industry emanated from academic work work that that was proceeding in obscurity. Well, the same thing happens on and on and on today. And uh, so the ability of for-profit companies to exploit the information coming from academia is is often hidden, but it's for real. And so 
the ability of these scientists, these young scientists at University of Texas at Austin to tell you about what they're doing in their labs is, is fantastic to help the public understand what, you know, that terrific research is, is actually going on. Now, I had one more example that I wanted to, wanted to throw out there, and that, that's work that was being done at the Rockefeller University in the 1960s by a, a then obscure man by the name of Jerry Edelman. And Jerry Edelman was studying the immune system and he was the first to, to understand and purify antibodies and establish the structure of antibodies. Well, that work was at that point obscure and no one thought it would be of necessarily any value, but antibodies turned out to be incredibly wonderful medicines. And Professor Giorgio and, and others have, have, have developed antibodies that do fantastic things. And what goes on in academia is the foundation for what later comes about is the sorts of products that we hear about in, in, in the news media. And like I say, I've said, this is maybe the third time, I, I, want, I want to emphasize the importance of the audience being able to hear from the scientists who are doing this work right in academia. So with that, let me, let me pass it back to the panelists. My name is Jennifer Maynard. I'm a professor in chemical engineering. Um, I'm joined today by Professor George Giorgio, who is also a professor in chemical engineering, and Jason McClellan, who is a professor in molecular biosciences. Um, so the plan for today is that I'm going to give you a little bit of background on what biologics are and how they work, um, and a little bit of the history of biologics at the University of Texas at Austin. And then Jason is going to um, discuss some of, the, of his contributions to the current COVID-19 vaccines, which are very exciting. And then George Giorgio is going to tell you about um, work done developing enzymes uh, primarily for um, anti-cancer applications. So um, to get us started off to make sure we're all on the same footing, since we have a variety of different um, backgrounds here, a little bit about what exactly are biologics and what do we mean when we talk about them. So biologics are one of the largest and most rapidly growing sectors of the pharmaceutical um, industry. They routinely outpace expectations. Um, this is because they are comp uh, biologics comprise a variety of classes of drugs. Some of these you've probably heard of, like growth factors, including human growth hormone, erythropoietin that stimulate growth of red blood cells. Um, antibodies are also in this category, like the ones that were administered to President Trump in October. And then also vaccines and enzymes that you're going to hear more about later today. It is remarkable that 12 of the top 20 drugs are now biologics. Humira has been the number one best-selling drug for a very long time, over a decade. It sells up to $20 billion a year, um, and it's used to treat um, inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. Um, another drug that you may have heard of is Herceptin. This is used to treat certain types of breast cancer. Um, it is also very successful and it's also notable because some of the seminal work to develop this drug was performed in a research lab at UCLA. Not only are these drugs very, very successful commercially, but they're also building on um, breakthroughs in medicine and biology that are happening 
almost in real time. And this is really uh, demonstrated by the fact that the 2018 Nobel Prizes were all um, in chemistry and medicine were delivered to people who work very closely related to biologics. So the award in medicine was given to Jim Allison, a UT Austin alum, and to Suko Hanju for development of a new class of anti-cancer antibodies that really unleash the power of your own immune system to go after cancer. Um, the award in chemistry was given to three people who pioneered tools that allow us to engineer biologics to make them better and more potent and more powerful. What's also remarkable is that all of these individuals have had tremendous impact on biologics that are either currently on the market or in the pipeline, and yet they are all um, operating academic research labs. So there's really this common theme that you're going to see more of today that academic labs are where a lot of exciting research starts that affects um, human medicines. So what exactly are biologicals? So unlike a typical small molecule drug that you would take um, that might be produced by organic chemistry methods. Biologicals are produced by cells like the Chinese hamster cell shown on the left. Um, biologicals are also generally engineered. They are modified to change certain properties like their potency, their duration, um, their stability. And a classic example here would be long-lasting insulin. So as opposed to most small molecule drugs that you may have to take three or four pills a day, biologics are often taken once a week, sometimes once a month, and in the future we hope it might even be less often than that. Um, biologics are primarily protein um, drugs. So proteins are very different from other small molecules. Proteins are made of 20 different amino acids. They're connected together in a chain and we don't actually make proteins from amino acids. Instead, we give DNA encoding the proteins to the cells and the cells then make the protein for us. And what we get initially is really like a long string of these different amino acids with the right kind in the right spot, um, but it's not yet active. In order to become active, your protein has to fold to create the right shape. And the shape is really important for what a protein is able to do. And the shape that a protein assumes is largely driven by these hydrophobic or really oily amino acids sort of all grouping together and clustering together in the middle of your protein and these more hydrophilic or water-loving residues um, staying on the outside of the protein next to water. One of the really useful features of uh, proteins is that we can change um, an individual amino acid or a couple individual amino acids and then change the shape of this protein and then change what it can do. So this is all fundamentally very different from a small molecule like penicillin, which is very small. You can even count the number of atoms here. It's very rigid. In contrast, proteins are very soft, they're floppy, they're mobile, and each amino acid is about the same size as penicillin. Like most drugs, it takes a while for biologics to be discovered and developed until they can be used in humans. Um, and some of the most exciting parts to work on is this engineering here. And this is where a lot of um, us who work in academic research labs really like to play because there are a lot of fun things you can do trying to give proteins new properties that they don't have before. So to give you a flavor of what this is like, if we start with the green fluorescent protein, which comes from jellyfish, it is green and fluorescent. But if we make a few changes to the amino acid sequence and we make the right kind of changes in the 
right spot, um, instead of having green fluorescence, we can change this protein to have a whole rainbow of different fluorescent colors. So this is a kind of approach um, that we use to mo uh, modify lots of different biological molecules, including Anthem, which is the first FDA-approved biologic to come out of work done at UT Austin. So as you may remember, after the 9-11 attacks, um, there was a second set of much smaller attacks um, that that involved anthrax, and these were um, anthrax powder that was in letters sent to senators. And when people open the letters, they inhale the powder, the bacteria start to grow um, in the blood and release toxins. So the team at UT Austin, which involved me, Professor George Yu, and Professor Iverson, we engineered a very high affinity antibody to act as an antidote and really bind very tightly to the toxin, soak it up, prevent the toxin from binding to cells and, and impacting them, and then also to remove the toxin from um, the bloodstream. So this antibody um, was engineered at UT Austin. It was then developed and received FDA approval um, via a company called Eleusis um, and is now part of the strategic national stockpile. So while this was really exciting, the expectation is that um, not that many people are going to need um, a treatment for anthrax. And so um, one of the things I wanted to do in my old lab, own lab was really work on therapeutics that are more likely to impact human health. Um, and one of the ones we chose to work on is whooping cough, which is another bacteria, which also produces a bunch of toxins. Um, but it's most dangerous for young infants, especially newborns. Um, so our idea was, well, if we could make antibodies, we could give antibodies to newborns who are at high risk um, as an at-birth dose. And then this would protect them for four or six months until they're no longer likely to get very sick or they're fully vaccinated. So we engineered antibodies that did just this, and we were fortunate enough um, to be able to evaluate this, this approach using um, a non-human model, um, and they actually worked incredibly well. So they worked better than we expected, um, and these have been licensed to a company, and we are excited to see where they go. Um, so that was that was an introduction. Hopefully, those of you who didn't already know much about biologics, you know a little bit more. Um, and next, I'm really excited to introduce um, Jason McClellan, who has been doing some of the most exciting work in biology over the past year. just thought I'd share a little bit about the type of work we do in the lab. And so we're really interested in infectious disease research and trying to understand at a molecular level how pathogens, viruses, interact with the host, bind to receptors, the steps involved in entering the cells, how the human immune system can generate antibodies against the, the pathogens. And you know, this is kind of a cartoonish type schematic, and, and this is fine for building a model, but we really want to understand this at a molecular level, where we know where every single atom um, in, in the 
lipids and the uh, genome and the spike proteins are located and how specifically they interact, which residues are contacting others. And with this type of information, when we get structural information, we can use that to design um, vaccine antigens that are stabilized in particular forms that are best able to elicit immune responses. We can generate um, these molecules as probes to sort B cells and isolate antibodies. We can work with companies to develop small molecules that bind with structures of the small molecules bind, we can rationally start to, to tweak different groups of the small molecule to better fit uh, using these principles of chemistry. And then a lot of these tools, stabilized antigens and antibodies and small molecule inhibitors can also be used back in basic science research to try and understand these questions and use them in various assays. And um, that's kind of overall what we're, what we're trying to do. And for structural biology, my lab uses two techniques. One is called x-ray crystallography. And for that, we need to first purify proteins and get the proteins to crystallize, form generally really beautiful crystals. And this is watching crystals grow and with time lapse. Um, so these individual protein molecules, much like sugar can form rock candy, these large protein molecules can crystallize. And these are some of the different crystals from my lab. Many of these are proteins from viruses or viruses bound to antibodies that humans produce. We then hit these crystals with an X-ray beam and we can generate these diffraction patterns. And from these diffraction patterns, we can determine electron density. And from the electron density, we can then interpret that as a, a molecule, as the protein or complex of interest, and really start to understand how the protein folds, as Jennifer was talking about, what specific fold it has, what function, where small molecules or antibodies or receptors are binding. Another method we can use is electron microscopy. And there, rather than crystallizing the proteins, we can freeze them in a very thin layer of, of ice, of water, vitrified ice. And it, it's hard to see, but there's actually very, uh, there's a bunch of little viral proteins bound to antibodies in this image. And uh, we can use some machine learning and image processing. Hopefully you can see some of the particles better. Uh, we can use additional machine learning to help pick each of these individual particles to extract these 2D images. We can then average, you know, this is 18,943 particles averaged together. And we can start getting these really high resolution projection images that using software, we can reconstruct into a single three-dimensional object that gives rise to all these different 2D projections. And so here you're looking at a, a viral protein from respiratory syncytial virus bound to the antigen binding fragments from an antibody. And this gives us a lot of information on how to optimize the antigen to better bind these antibodies or how to modify the antibodies to better bind the, the virus. And that brings us to structural vaccinology. And uh, it's a major thing that our lab does. Prior approaches to, to vaccine development were to kind of take a, a pathogen, virus, bacterium, inactivate it in some way, and just inject it. And he had really no idea. He didn't even need to know really what was going on. Other than that, you started with the pathogen, you hopefully inactivated it enough and injected it, kind of saw what happens. With structural vaccinology, we're taking a much more rational approach where we usually start with people, uh, survivors of, of infections who have made antibodies against the pathogens. And then um, using approaches that George and others have developed, we can isolate monoclonal antibodies, we can sort B cells, 
isolate hundreds of antibodies. We can test them all in different assays to see which ones can bind to the virus and block entry. And then once we've determined the, the best in class antibodies that are most potent or are most broad, able to recognize many different variants of the virus, we can perform structural studies and see where these antibodies are binding to the antigen. And maybe we see from this that this viral protein, which is made up of the red and blue portions, this antibody only binds to the red portion. So we can start to make some, uh, do some engineering approaches and try and make a vaccine that's based only on the red portion, maybe self-assembling into a nanoparticle, such that when we inject a person with this uh, antigen, with this nanoparticle, we elicit this exact type of antibody that we characterize. And so we're really using uh, a characterization of the human immune response, identifying the best antibodies to protect people, structurally characterizing the, the interaction with the antigens, and then rationally engineering the antigen for use in the vaccine. And so that brings us to some of our work on coronavirus. And we've been working on coronaviruses since 2013. A lot of the early images, we've known about coronaviruses. The field has known about coronaviruses since the, the late 1960s. Um, they knew that they had these projections coming off the surface of the virus that reminded people of the, the solar corona. So they're called coronaviruses. And it really wasn't until our work um, in collaboration with Andrew Ward, the Scripps Research Institute, and Barney Graham at the Vaccine Research Center where we could understand at the molecular level what these spike proteins look like. And uh, this is some of our work on the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19. So at the beginning of last year in 2020, we determined the first cryo-EM structure of the spike protein from SARS-CoV-2. And using this information, and a lot of other structural information from, from some other groups. Now, this has allowed us to really understand at a molecular level what the virus looks like and the number of spikes on the surface of the virus, how the spikes move. And we can then take that information and start trying to design vaccine antigens. And uh, this is another one of our efforts where using the structure of the spike protein, we could rationally go in and make changes to the spike, uh, introducing proline residues, salt bridges and, and other types of like molecular staples to try and make a spike that's even more stable than what occurs on the surface of the virus, such that it would be a better antigen. Uh, maybe we could make more of it or uh, it doesn't fall apart into other confirmations. And the spike that we engineered several years ago has been adapted to SARS-CoV-2 and is now found in four of the leading COVID-19 vaccines. And this is a second generation molecule that we've created that is starting to be used or considering to be used in, in second generation COVID-19 vaccines, maybe that also encode these variants like the South African variant. And what's exciting is that we can see, this is from a mouse immunogenicity experiment. You can take our original spike proteins or our second generation spikes, immunized mice, uh, three weeks apart, draw their blood, and then test to see uh, how how much neutralizing antibody can they elicit? And higher is better. And what we can see is that particularly at a low dose, if we give mice 0.4 micrograms of either our original spike, which is in many of the current vaccines or second generation spike, we're able to elicit 10 times as many neutralizing antibodies with our second gen spike than, than the current spike. So this is just a little sample of the power of biologics in structural biology and rational engineering. All right, 
So now I think we'll kick it over to George. My name is George Georgiou. I'm a professor in uh, the Department of Chemical Engineering as well as, uh, as well as in Molecular Biosciences and Biomedical Engineering. So the work I will describe is primarily in collaboration with uh, my two close collaborators, uh, Professor Stone and Professor Polito. And generally speaking, our laboratory is working in the area of uh, uh, human engineered enzymes and antibodies. The uh, research that we do is highly translational and relates to uh, first of all, coming up with a clinical concept and then inventing a molecule, developing this molecule and doing all the work that we can at the University of Texas to be able to bring the molecule forward to clinical studies, uh, at which point we have to obviously engage partners to be able to do so. So um, our work has led to a number of therapeutics uh, that are either uh, approved or in clinical trial. Specifically, uh, Jennifer talked about Anthem, an FDA-approved anti-infective antibody for anthrax, pexilaritinase, which is in phase three clinical trials so that are um, progressing currently and hopefully uh, will be completed before long uh, for a rare disease. Uh, canurinase, another enzyme that is entering clinical development shortly, and its mechanism of action is quite interesting. It activates the immune system to fight cancer, but also could have other applications. Another enzyme for a rare disease, and finally, a uh, yet another enzyme, uh, which is in late-stage preclinical development for both uh, uh, rare diseases in one particular setting, and also importantly for cancer. Uh, I will just describe two of these examples in a little bit more detail. Pexilarginase, specifically, it's uh, used to treat as a potential treatment for hyperarginemia. Uh, it's a genetic disease where basically very large amounts, very high concentrations of the amino acid arginine accumulate in uh, the uh, blood of patients, and that leads through a number of mechanisms to very severe growth impairment, uh, severe neurodevelopmental effects, intellectual uh, impairment and loss of uh, uh, mobility, as well as uh, low life expectancy. Um, this is an example of a patient, which I think is quite dramatic, of a, uh, that was treated uh, for 20 weeks with the enzyme that we developed. And again, this was developed at UT. Eventually, it had to be licensed to a company because uh, universities cannot do the clinical development that is required typically in order to get drugs to the clinic. But in any event, uh, this patient could not walk without um, walking aid. And after about 20 weeks of treatment, um, uh, this uh, young woman could actually walk for about uh, roughly 50 meters or so across her legs. And there were other signs of uh, pretty significant clinical improvement. Another example is uh, canurinase, which is an enzyme that depletes an amino acid. This amino acid is a derivative of tryptophan, an enzyme that most of you have 
heard of or are familiar with because of its role, obviously, in a number of, uh, because we talk about it, tryptophan in the diet quite often. Uh, well, it turns out that elevated levels of canurinine suppress the immune system, and that's an established mechanism of immune suppression. Uh, and also, elevated levels of canurinine, for a very different reason, are associated with neurodegeneration and depression. Uh, so we developed an enzyme that can break down this amino acid so that we can normalize the levels of kynurinine. Uh, we have shown in a number of animal models that, has, uh, that the enzyme has very potent effects in activating the immune system to treat cancer. And clinical trials uh, for this particular uh, therapeutic will begin um, uh, later this year uh, in collaboration with Aikina Oncology and Bristol Myers Squibb. Briefly, I would like to describe the concept and, and the tools and the process that we use in our lab and also other labs at the University of Texas to develop potential therapeutics. We come up with a target, just like Jason mentioned earlier, with a coronavirus uh, spike protein, for example, as a target for vaccine development, and likewise what we and others are doing. Uh, we have a number of technologies that we can deploy for molecular discovery, uh, either technology that we developed here, and there is a number of technologies that have been developed by the engineers and science at the University of Texas that can assist with that, uh, to ultimately come up with a lead molecule that we can use as a proof for proof of concept experiments. In other words, whether we're having a biological effect that can impact the uh, specific disease that we'd like to be able to address. Uh, after those studies are performed and they're successful and there is a go decision, then we design the clinical candidate molecule. In other words, the molecule that will actually eventually end up in uh, people, um, we perform studies on its mechanism of action in animals and in cells, in test tubes, but also, and perhaps that's something that we do at the University of Texas that's not as common in academia, we think very early on about manufacturing and feasibility and what's called developability of these proteins. And at that stage, and this is a big gap of in clinical translation across the board, we have to find partners. We have to partner with uh, usually the private sector, sometimes uh, with government agencies to be able to uh, perform this work uh, uh, that is required for uh, initiating clinical tri uh, trials and eventually after successful clinical trials for having a molecule that's approved for human use. <laughs> wonderful presentations. And I, I think we're going to have some questions coming from the audience, but I thought I'd start out with a few questions to the three scientists, the three panelists, that might help the audience understand the challenges involved in, 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 in making their research translatable, making it actually have the potential of helping, helping human patients. What's the University of Texas is a uh, special sauce or X factor uh, in, in enabling you guys to do research that may be relevant to, to human therapies. 
I think a very important component has been the close interaction between engineering and basic science, which allows us to think early on about issues like production, also new technologies that perhaps are not mainstream among our more uh, molecular mechanism biologists. Uh, and finally, uh, the desire and uh, the environment that exists here where there are very little, there are very few, actually no boundaries for collaborations. I mean, it's a very highly collaborative environment. And I think uh, everybody else that's working at this institution will attest to that as well. You guys have had some successes, which are wonderful. We just heard from George, but also Jason, you know, his, his structure of the spike protein is having substantial impact on, on, on the development of COVID vaccines. So the question is, how has your relationship with industry changed now that you've had some successes? Do, do, do people now know that Austin is a place to look to? Uh, I can say for, for my lab, uh, we get about half of our funding from industry. So we have a lot of sponsored research agreements with large pharmaceutical companies and uh, work on a lot of different pathogens and it's pretty exciting. It's a great way to, to work with people in the industry. Uh, we're working on molecules that are either in clinical development or are moving on that path. The students get interactions and can network with people with in industry. Uh, so that's been very exciting. Uh, additionally, we also work on some of our own things that we generate intellectual uh, property and then partner with industry uh, later on to try and commercialize those. Yeah, I mean, I think it's encouraging to hear from these three scientists to, to give evidence that, that Austin, the University of Texas is on the map. I mean, historically, Boston and, and the Bay Area are the black holes of, of biotechnology. That's, that's where the vast majority of, of intellectual information is coming from, but, but that's changing. And I'm very encouraged to hear the panelists today to give evidence that it's changing as we speak right in Austin. So my next question is, is uh, you know, maybe the, maybe first to you, Jennifer, what, what's next in the pipeline? What are you up to? What's cooking? Well, that, that's the fun thing about being in academics is you can do lots of things and the pipeline tends to be sometimes long, um, but as long as it's full. So, I mean, we're really excited about um, some approaches we have to looking at cytomegalovirus. Um, we're also really excited that Jason is helping us with some of our pertussis stuff. So it's really hard to engineer proteins if you can't see what they look like. Um, so for us, this has been, you know, what really something that's um, and allowing us to do a lot of different things than we were able to do before. The next question I have came up in, in George's presentation, and that's something that I think that many people are not aware of, and that is to come up with a, a useful medicine, new medicine, the scientists can dream up the science and they can actually, right there in Austin, do lots of the foundational work to, to make the new antibody or make the new enzyme or or, or make the new small molecule drug. But thereafter is a process of clinical testing that is extremely expensive and laborious. And in order for 
that process to take place, invariably, uh, academic scientists have to team up with for-profit industrial companies. And so let me ask the question to the three panelists. How have you, how do you feel your capabilities are to be teamed up with the for-profit companies that are required to do the clinical trials as expensive as they are and, and as, as, as all of the uh, regulatory processes are involved in, in, in getting the trial done properly. Do you feel you're able to make these partnerships with for-profit companies for this purpose? Well, I can start from my experience, um, especially earlier on, and we're talking about 10 years plus uh, earlier when, as you said earlier, Steve, uh, people would not look further from uh, Boston or San Francisco, the Bay Area for new technologies. Um, we really had to make a strong case. In other words, have a great deal of supporting uh, information and also uh, check all the check boxes that are required for therapeutic development in order to attract the investors and to attract uh, biotech involvement in some of the technologies to move forward. Uh, the reason being is somebody will have to make an investment of several tens of millions of dollars, and usually they tend to go to Harvard and Stanford and MIT because that's where um, they have established connections and established track record. But once you build a significant foundation of uh, research data that is compelling, it becomes easier to interact with uh, either biotech or pharma or investors, I think, to be able to do that. And increasingly, uh, throughout UT, because we are thing on the map more so than we used to be, uh, the process is becoming easier. Having said that, it does require a fair amount of involvement by the uh, investigator, uh, in addition, of course, to the invaluable help that uh, the Office of Technology Commercialization is providing. So the, uh, the investigators cannot be dissociated from the process, even though we have now a pretty good support system to allow those connections to happen to move forward. Can I think Another point that came up earlier is the importance of a collaborative environment. Any one laboratory almost never will have all of the capabilities required to move something towards commercialization. So for example, Jason talked about uh, uh, X-ray diffraction analysis to determine structures of proteins or cryo-electron microscopy. Well, the University of Texas, in order to have those capabilities, they can't all be in Jason's lab. He, he's an expert at, at those, but if he did not have colleagues that also participated in the same sort of research, it would be extremely difficult to have the capabilities, have the momentum to compete with Stanford and to compete with MIT. So I, I, I think uh, when you're fighting an uphill battle, it's really good to have teamwork and uh, ever since I was a student at University of Texas back in the late 1960s, I've always felt that there's a very good atmosphere of camaraderie, of friendship. Uh, uh, and uh, over the years, I've watched the biosciences at University of Texas grow better and better and better. And I, I'm hopeful and sure that they're extensively collaborative. So. That, that's encouraging, but now I'll, I'll translate that to the question. 
now that you have a medical school down there, Dell Medical School, one might hope that your abilities to compete in translational research will be even better. So maybe I'll throw that out to the three panelists and ask, ask the question, is that expectation on the horizon? Is that encouraging hope, uh, something that might, might, might be transformative in, in, the, in the decade to come? Yeah, I, uh, we're very excited about the Dell Medical School, uh, particularly on things infectious disease, cancer, um, having access to, to patient samples, possible clinical testing. Uh, this should be a really uh, big benefit to a, a lot of us working in the more translational space. I'll, I'll say this. I mean, it's very hard for medical school to develop all of the capabilities required to train their medical students. So historically, medical schools had both clinical departments and basic science departments. And of course you need the clinical departments to train the physicians how to be cardiologists or oncologists and on and on and on. But historically ba basic science departments were a fundamental part of, of, of medical schools. Well, the Dell Medical School is largely reliant upon the University of Texas itself for the basic science training that's needed to support a medical school. They, they have not built necessarily felt compelled to build departments of pharmacology, biochemistry, genetics, cell biology, and on and on and on physiology, the way old fashioned medical schools have. So I think the opportunity for a synergistic relationship between Dell Medical School and the University of Texas, it, it should be optimal. I agree, I'm very excited. Our aspiration is to become the research conduit for the medical school and, and basically develop perhaps a slightly different model than a more siloed, in some ways, uh, uh, con more conventional medical school university. Yeah, so uh, let's see, we, we had we had two questions about uh, DeepMind and the ability of DeepMind uh, and the progress they've made in protein folding and whether this advance has percolated into any of our research. Uh, so uh, DeepMind is a machine learning algorithm uh, that's been used to help take the amino acid sequence of a protein and then predict the three-dimensional fold that that protein would adopt. And it's been a very difficult process uh, in, in general, a problem that's been difficult to solve. And uh, this year, DMI made a, a real major advance. And unfortunately, it's been pretty closed sourced. Um, they're releasing the algorithm. It's been difficult to replicate exactly what they're doing. Uh, hopefully that will change. They'll make it available to scientists or scientists will reverse engineer and, and come up with uh, similar, similar algorithms. A lot of the proteins that DeepMind was working on are still fairly simple from a structural standpoint, uh, single domain. Uh, it could be helpful in our research. Uh, it wouldn't be able to predict, at least not yet, something as complicated as the, the spike protein, which contains three different protomers and really uh, complicated folding. But uh, we'd love to have access to it, and we think it, it could help our research. But unfortunately, it's still, still closed source. Compared to other universities, is UT more favorable regarding intellectual property for industry collaboration and support? Do you feel that the UT Austin is, is well, it treats you well in terms uh, of being an inventor? 
I, I feel like it does. I've only been here two years, and, but I've been at one other university and also at the National Institutes of Health. And um, they have an entire, at UT Austin anyway, they have an entire office of industry engagement, OIE, uh, that really professionally handles all of my interactions with industry and sponsored research. Um, I think they're, they're patenting and um, the share of royalties and, and licenses, license fees that goes to inventors is very fair. Um, so I, I think it's a great place for that. And um, yeah, they, they really enable and encourage this type of work. George has a lot of experience. I don't know if you want to weigh in. I agree uh, with Jason's assessment. It didn't used to be, uh, UT Franklin, the UT system to some extent, had uh, somewhat of a bad reputation. Uh, years back, 20 years back, in terms of um, its uh, ability to license or its interest to license technology. That has changed radically, and it's a very different world. Uh, in recent years, over the last maybe 10 years, we've had technologies that were commercialized with uh, uh, some major institutions that were jointly developed. And uh, in all those cases, and there were three cases that I, 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 I'm all, well, I was personally involved in, the University of Texas was much easier to deal with than other really major institutions uh, in, uh, in, on the East Coast in particular. So uh, my limited comparison seemed to indicate that actually the environment and the processes here for technology transfer are A, transparent and uh, easy to navigate. Uh, and this is only the time that has happened over the last uh, few years. It wasn't always like that, but it's very different now. While the vaccines are safe and effective, what is known on their effectiveness is compared with natural immunity. So if one gets infected with COVID, I think the news is out there that you can get infected again. So that, you know, historically, if you got infected by one disease and got over it, let's say smallpox, you would never get it again, at least for decades. But, you know, the the word is out that people can be infected with COVID and then get infected again. How does that compare? Does the immunization give you better or longer term protection than actually being infected? Can you know yeah. any of the three panelists could could try and answer that question? This is probably in my wheelhouse, so I think I'll I'll, I'll take this one. Um, the immune response from natural infection is highly variable, um, ranging from very little. Uh, immune response to a robust re immune response with uh, very high titers of neutralizing antibodies. That tends to correlate with disease severity. Uh, people have, have had um, an asymptomatic infection, didn't even maybe realize they were infected, but generally have a, uh, a lower immune response than those people that were um, severely ill, hospitalized, and have very robust immune responses um, that should protect them against uh, future infections. The, the vaccines are generating a pretty uniform, very high, very robust uh, antibody response. It's higher, higher than some of the best responses um, in patients who are infected and had severe disease. Uh, we haven't seen uh, much in the way of reinfections from or infections of vaccinated uh, people, uh, maybe a little bit in South Africa with some of the new viral variants. Um, what we're hoping to see is that uh, even if you get infected after a, an initial infection or after vaccination, that the disease severity is lower 
and um, that maybe that you don't progress to hospitalization and death. And that's ultimately uh, the goal of the vaccines is really to prevent severe disease and, and death. It's a very high bar to actually prevent uh, reinfections, uh, particularly for respiratory pathogens. So Stevie mentioned uh, smallpox, measles, uh, these aren't respiratory pathogens. And because they go in through the nose and upper airways, uh, it's difficult to protect, protect uh, those regions uh, with a systemic immune response. Did I hear that the RNA vaccines make a spike that is similar to, but engineered to be more stable than the one in the wild? And, and, and I think this is a fantastic question because I think that's exactly what Jason has done. Yep. That means his research went right into the whole process of making a, a terrific vaccine. So Jason, answer that. The answer I think is yes. Yeah, the answer is yes. Uh, it depends on which vaccines, but the Moderna, Pfizer-BioNTech, Johnson & Johnson, and Novavax are all using a stabilized version of the spike protein that my lab engineered. Uh, actually, back in 2017, we figured out how to stabilize coronaviruses in general, uh, working on the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus and the first SARS coronavirus. And so when this new SARS-CoV-2 emerged, the of the agent of COVID-19, we knew exactly how to uh, tweak a couple of amino acids, replace them with a different one. And uh, those four uh, companies all use that in their vaccines. And so the only, the only major player that hasn't used it is the AstraZeneca Oxford. And so the, the, these first gen molecules um, look, look good and you know, the vaccines are, are efficacious. And then we've made a, a second gen that better. looks much better. And uh, yeah, now we're, we're talking to various companies as they're beginning to reformulate and switch the spike sequence from the Wuhan variant to like the South African variant. Uh, this could be a time when they, they swap in the additional stabilizing mutations. And uh, those give a boost in expression, which could potentially allow them to maybe lower the dose or to just achieve a higher antibody response using a, a similar dose. So we're really excited about that. Jason, that's terrific. I mean, this goes back. So as Jason told you, he, he was doing this in 2017 before anyone knew that there would be a commercial need. So he was just doing basic science to, to study these spike proteins and, you know, get ready in case something happened. Well, it happened. And where did they come to? They, they you know, Moderna, Pfizer, all of them came to University of Texas to use his technology. Yeah, and that's, that's science takes a long time. Science takes a long time to do this research. And so you can't start it when the pandemic occurs. Uh, and we don't want to be reactionary and throw a bunch of money after coronaviruses now, it's, it's kind of too late. So we need to broadly fund science in different infectious diseases, other types of diseases, and create that body of knowledge that we were prepared for, for the future pandemics. If I may add to this, part of the reason, for example, why there have been many antibodies that were developed very quickly and went into clinical development, like the ones that were used to treat uh, uh, President Trump. Part of the reason was that uh, the Department of Defense of all uh, agencies had a very significant program to expedite the development of therapeutics uh, for 
in cases like a pandemic. And a lot of the infrastructure, whatever infrastructure we have, by the way, that was a big fight to get those programs funded and the funding maintained. And it wasn't at a very high level, but whatever infrastructure we have in that regard, we owe it to some extent to those Department of uh, Defense efforts. And also to, I think, to the foresight of the NIH leadership and also Dr. Foggi, who established a vaccine research center that played a key role in uh, uh, vaccine development. Wouldn't you agree, Jason? Yeah, that's right. And uh, a lot of the technology we're seeing has been leveraged from the study of other viruses, HIV, for instance, and a lot of the work on rapid antibody isolation. Um, so yeah, you have to you have to both study specific uh, pathogens, but then also platform development, like mRNA vaccine development, antibody isolation. Um, and so all that is, it, it really came together and allowed a, a rapid response but we could probably still go faster and hopefully we will in the future. And that's where we start thinking about things like pan universal coronavirus vaccines and antibodies um, that we could start to develop now to protect us from future coronaviruses that haven't even jumped from bats into humans yet. You know, what's the difference between a, a, an mRNA vaccine and a traditional vaccine? Yeah, so the difference of uh, DNA vaccines have been uh, pursued quite a bit. In fact, a lot of that work was done at UT Southwestern. Um, the problem is that you have a delivery issue. So you have to get your genetic material inside a cell. And then for a DNA, if you're delivering DNA, you have to get it inside the nucleus where the DNA is. Um, with an mRNA vaccine, you just have to get it inside the cell. So that's one part that helps a lot. Um, another, another part that is important is with the DNA vaccine, there's always a concern that the DNA may integrate into your genome. It could disrupt important genes that you need or tumor suppressor genes or things like that. And it's also harder to turn off. So mRNA is sort of inherently unstable, so it has a shorter term of expression, um, which gives you a lot more control over any possible side effects. So it's, it seems to be easier to deliver and also easier to control. So um, it will be very interesting to see what future vaccines hold in terms of are they going to move to a largely mRNA platform or are there going to be certain situations where these are more appropriate? Um, that'll be very interesting. Those DNA and mRNA vaccines, that's in contrast to other more traditional approaches where you purify the protein in large bioreactors. You use like these Chinese hamster ovary cells to make the protein, which you then purify in huge columns and you inject that protein directly into your muscle. And you're not asking your, your muscle cells to make any protein. You're just asking them to recognize the protein as foreign. Here, we're asking the body to do a little bit of work and uh, translate those mRNAs into the protein. But it cuts down on a lot of purification and other things. For the uninitiated, including me, as of a year or two ago, the idea of a messenger RNA vaccine was, was uh, out in outer space. And lo and behold, in short order, both Moderna and, and, and Pfizer have delivered a vaccine that's 90 or 95% protective. I think that's just phenomenal. 
And this is, I mean, mRNA vaccines really got the, the start in academia uh, with Caitlin Crico and Drew Weissman. And, you know, uh, Caitlin was demoted uh, from uh, at UPenn because nobody believed in messenger RNA and it would ever be useful. And uh, no, she's, she, she's going to be a hero. Yeah. She, the, the scientist, I, she thought this was the way to go, but she had to overcome a big obstacle. And that is traditional messenger RNA was, was unstable. It, it, it wouldn't work very well. And so she found a, a modification of the RNA, uridentilation, that ended up being the magic bullet. And she's the one who did it. And so I think in terms and uh, in, in time, she'll get her due recognition. But it does show that it can be a lonely life. If you're on the front edge of technology and you're years ahead of other people, you might just die on that horizon. And her academic career died, but not before she was able to demonstrate scientifically that her science was valid. Yeah. So, And now she's uh, at BioNTech and you know, helps save the world. Uh, yep, absolutely. Save a bunch of lives. Absolutely. Now, I hope we've given some sense of education into this field of science, as well as giving you a sense of the exciting things that are going on at the Cockerell School of Engineering at University of Texas at Austin.